The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. During the, uh, the greeting time, some, someone who remained nameless greeted me and says, I'm, I'm sick, I'm tired, and I'm drugged. So don't look at me while you're preaching. <laughs> I think this person was saying, I'm going to take a nap, so <laughs> I'm planning on it. <laughs> Please don't sleep. Let me pray. Father, we rejoice in the truth that you do all that you please by your powerful right hand. Again and again, the scriptures encourage us with that truth. By your hand, by your hand you moved and you made everything that is. By your hand you sustain everything. By your hand you remake people and you will remake all of the earth. Your hand is mighty. It is strong. We trust in it, and I pray, Lord, give us grace to trust in it all the more. Because what we talk about this morning, what this passage lifts up to us this morning, is the fact that your hand moves, your hand accomplishes things, but it challenges us to believe it. Lord, I pray that you would bring that point home to us. Lord, I don't know that I have the, the words or the, the clarity to express that point. By myself, I know that I don't. So would you, by your Spirit, use my words and my mouth to make clear to us reason to hope in you. Reason to hope in you in all kinds of environments and in all kinds of places. Grow in us an assurance that you, by your hand, produce fruit, regardless of the environment. Grow confidence in us and grow boldness in us on that issue. Give clarity to my expression. Give clarity to our thinking and listening. Inhabit this place, Lord. Come and by your hand accomplish your will here this morning with your word. And I pray that so that Christ may be glorified in our lives and then in the lives of those around us as we proclaim him. Pray that in his name and for his glory. Amen. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at the remarkable event of the conversion of Cornelius, chapters 10 and 11. And in that very same event, the conversion of Peter and the church. Obviously, there's two different conversions there. Cornelius is coming to faith in Christ, but Peter and the church are already Christians, so they are being converted not to faith in Christ, but to faith and to genuine belief in Jesus' Gentile mission. See, at this point, it's been eight, ten years since Acts 1-8 was spoken by Jesus. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, but for years, they hadn't really bought that, hadn't really believed it. Till the end of till the middle of Acts chapter 11, verse 18, they hear the account, and the church now, the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, says, "Well then, God has granted repentance even to the Gentiles, and they officially kind of ratify the Gentile mission. 
That's a little bit backwards, that Jesus would say something and then we would finally approve of it. But given that we're people, it works that way sometimes, and that's how it happened here. The church stops its critical opposition and begins its praise. God has granted repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. It's amazing in their mind, unbelievable in their mind. We must, we people, we must repent. We must turn away from what we are by nature prone to cling on to, prone to hope and trust in. We must turn to Christ. But that doesn't happen given who we are. God must grant that, and amazingly, he's even willing to do that for his enemies, like the Gentiles. The church is amazed, the apostles are amazed, they get on board. As we find out today, it's a really good thing that the apostles get on board with this, because the bus is leaving town. Jesus is pressing his mission forward, and it would be a little bit embarrassing if the leadership wasn't behind that passage today, we're going to look at the last half of chapter 11. We find that actually what's happening throughout the Mediterranean world is that the gospel is being carried out and it is being pressed into Gentile places and Gentile cities and Gentile homes. It's happening in a city even like Antioch. Let me read the passage. We're at the end of Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. Acts 11 19 to 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Our passage begins by looping us back to the beginning of Acts chapter 8, where you'll recall a great persecution broke out after Stephen, who was the subject of chapter 7, Stephen was executed by stoning, and then Saul, before he was converted, led a massive persecution against the church in Jerusalem and chased most of the Christians out of the city, and they fled everywhere, seeking safety. Where did they go? Well, all over the place. Chapter 8 mentions that they went to Judea and Samaria, but here we find out that they spread out even further. They went to Phoenicia, which would be like modern-day Lebanon. And they went to Cyprus, which was a large island in the eastern Mediterranean. 
and they went to Antioch, which is further up the coast, just into what would be modern Turkey, just into the southern portion of Turkey where the Mediterranean turns the corner and the coastline would start to go east-west. Right there is where Antioch is, and it says that the, the refugees fled even to there. You need to understand a little bit about Antioch. This is more than a, just a history lesson here, a geography lesson, but you need to get what Antioch is. At this point in history, Antioch is the third largest and third most significant city in the known world. Speaking of the Roman Empire, all of the Roman Empire, there's Rome, there's Alexandria, and then there's Antioch. Right around half a million people live in Antioch. So think of it like half of the Salt Lake Valley in this ancient city. Antioch is huge, and it is very diverse. It is a great cosmopolitan city. Because of where it's situated, it's the connection of the east and west, so the eastern desert people, and then beyond them even Asian people coming in from this side, and the urban European people coming in from the west, from the west meet here in Antioch. So it is a melting pot of cultures and peoples and races. Because of where it's located, it's also an economic center. Near the coast, between these two regions, a lot of commerce flows through there. It's a political capital also. It's near shipping lines because it's close to the coast. It's wealthy. It's architecturally well-developed. It's beautiful. A lot is written about how stylistic the city was. It's morally loose, religiously pagan, idolatrous. It is everything that Jerusalem is not. It's a key point. Stark contrast with Jerusalem. And so, very unexpectedly, or, if you've been thinking things through, entirely expectedly, Antioch is about to become the capital city of Christianity. From here on in the book, Antioch is the center. They check in at Jerusalem. The apostles remain in Jerusalem, but Antioch becomes the hub Christianity. This becomes Paul's home base for the whole rest of the book. It's the sending ground for all his missionary journeys. Antioch. Massive, cosmopolitan, pagan Antioch. The gospel first arrives there, though, carried by refugees. Fleeing the persecution in Jerusalem. And at first, these refugees who are Jewish, they only speak to Jews. They haven't yet understood the message of chapters 10 and 11. Of course, they didn't know of the events in chapters 10 and 11. But they hadn't got that yet. They thought, this is the Jewish Messiah. It's for Jewish people. We're Jews. We'll talk to Jews. But a few of them mentally crossed over their own lines. Referring to some things we talked about in the previous weeks. People, we all draw lines. And there was a massive line between Jew and Gentile. But some of them thought, I wonder... What would happen if we talked to Gentiles? And so they did. Some of these men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus, that island. Cyrene is on the north coast of Africa, so these guys aren't anywhere near home. They're from Africa. They're here in Antioch. They took a risk, and they spoke to Hellenists, those who have a Greek cultural background, and the contrast between the verses would tell us that they're not Jews. They're culturally Greek. They're culturally Gentile. And they talked to them about this God Jesus, and they proclaim him as the Lord, not the Caesars, not all the various idols that are worshipped in the city. This guy, Jesus, is the Lord, and the hand of the Lord was with them, 
and massive fruit was born. Very successful ministry here because the hand of the Lord was with them. Without that hand, no fruit. With that hand, great fruit. That is the deciding factor. The hand of the Lord was present, and so many people came to believe. And Jerusalem heard about it. Now, the timeline's not very clear here. If you think about this, the persecution from the, end of cha- from the beginning of chapter 8, it's been a number of years since then, so it's not real clear how long did it take them to get to Antioch, how long did they only speak to Jews, when did they eventually begin to speak to Gentiles, how long till a large enough number of them were gathered in that it became an event, and how long till word reached Jerusalem. It, that's all is not very clear, but what is clear is that word reaches Jerusalem after the Cornelius event. Because Jerusalem is not scandalized by this. They're concerned, but they're not scandalized. They don't send an apostle to stamp this out and suppress it. They send Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That's what his name is. The son of encouragement. They send him to go, and they don't expect him to come back. He's moving to Antioch. He doesn't come back for well over a year, and that's when he's sent by the Antiochian church. He's moving there for the purpose of encouraging, nurturing, building up, and teaching this Gentile church. So Jerusalem's come a long way here. It's a good thing. Barnabas goes to help them, and he sees, in verse 23, the situation with his own eyes. He'd heard, of course, about the conversions, but now he gets there. And, and what would he have seen? Obviously, he would have had to have looked at behaviors and, and visual expressions. Come to that a little bit later. But the text says that what he saw with his eyes was grace. He saw the grace of God. The undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God given to people in Antioch seen in, the, in this church here. He looks at it and he's gladdened by it. He marvels at it. He rejoices in it. He doesn't show any bias here. He's a man full of the Spirit and so he embraces these guys as brothers and sisters and he gives himself to the work of building up this church and it continues to grow. Even more people are added until he realizes, I've got a little bit of a problem. I need help. And providentially, who's in the neighborhood? Saul. Chased out by persecution himself, he now is in his hometown of Tarsus, which is another 125 miles around the coast. So Barnabas goes and gets Saul and brings him back, and the two of them pastor this church for over a year, teaching it and shaping it and building it up. Then in verses 27 to 30, we have what might seem like a little story just kind of dropped in here about this prophecy about the famine. It doesn't seem to fit in some ways. And it could cause us to kind of wonder and look at, well, what is prophecy like? And how do we know they were actually foretelling the future and get us kind of off on that track? Don't go there. That's not the main point. The reason this is put in here is for this purpose. Here's a church, Gentile church, being shaped for a year. And the scripture says that God was actually speaking through this prophet Agabus. What happens when this Gentile church comes to know about a great hardship that's going to hit the world, including Jews in Jerusalem that they've never met in a foreign country. Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are going to be hit by this famine. How does the church respond? 
This is why this is here. They decide, according to their own means, to give money to their brothers in Jerusalem. They get something. These people are actually converted, changed, Gentile and Jew. There should be a massive wall there, but in these, in these guys' eyes, there's not. They are our brothers. Though they're Jewish, though we've never met them, we're going to act just like the Jewish church act, acted in chapters 2, 3, and 4. Same kind of language. According to the ability that we have, we're going to give to meet their needs. That's what the church was doing in Jerusalem, and now the Gentile church does that for the church in Jerusalem that they've never met and are of a different racial background. They've been converted. Evidence of grace. That's the text for the day. What do we learn from it? Well, structurally, what we have to acknowledge is that this is, this is accomplishing a certain purpose here in this book. It's explaining for us how we get from Cornelius and, yes, we can talk to Gentiles, chapter 11, to a chapter and a half from now, the whole rest of the book is about preaching to Gentiles from Antioch. How do we get from here to here? This is explaining. This is, how, this is where Antioch comes from. This is where Saul reemerges on the scene. This is Gentile mission. So structurally, that's how it's functioning. But there's more to it than just understanding the structure of the book. Some more here. Let me put it like this. Let me put it in a sentence here. This is a little bit of a long sentence, so I'll say it a couple times. It's the main point for this morning. God's gospel can and will bear lasting fruit. God's gospel can and will bear lasting fruit even in irreligious places. That's the uniqueness of this passage, the even in irreligious places. God's gospel can and will bear lasting fruit even in irreligious places where it's unlikely, where it's hard, where you'd never expect it. So we must carry the gospel there. God's gospel works. This is an incredibly, this whole book is incredibly optimistic. The gospel works everywhere. Not just on the home, on the home turf where the crowd's friendly. It can go on the road and win in foreign arenas. It travels really well. Wherever the hand of the Lord moves, wherever he decides to pour out his grace, fruit is born. It doesn't matter where. Religious, irreligious. Jew, Gentile. It does not matter. So we should be optimistic. We should be filled with hope and carry the gospel everywhere. It's the main thing we're going to be looking at this morning. I'm going to make two observations along those lines. The first one is very general. I get more specific in the second observation. The first one, generally speaking, God's gospel bears great and lasting fruit. Those two things go together. The gospel and great and lasting fruit. Not temporary fruit, not perishing fruit, not little bit of fruit, kind of, sort of. Great fruit that lasts This should be a point of hope. That's what happens when the gospel moves into some place. Fruit is born. Fruit grows. 
These men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they dared to preach a message in Antioch. They preached Jesus as Lord, verse 20. His identity, who he is, his critical crosswork, soon coming judgment. They preached that Jesus is the ruler in an environment very familiar with discussions about rulers. Because after all, in this time period, it was the Caesars who said, I am King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That was a statement used by the Caesars. Christians took that from them and said, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That would have been the language of the day. All kinds of gods, local deities and whatnot. He rules here, she rules over here, they rule over there, and the Caesar rules over all of them. And these guys pull into town and say, no, Jesus is the Lord. It's a slightly different message than would have been preached in Samaria. We can read back how Philip preached the Christ, it says there. In an environment where people were expecting the Messiah, he preaches Jesus is the Messiah. Here in an environment where we're talking about rule and authority, they preach Jesus is the one who is in authority. Jesus is the ruler. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who made everything, the one who sustains everything, the one for whom everything exists, the one to whom we must give our allegiance, the one to whom at the end we will all give an account. Jesus is Lord proven by his cross and his resurrection. That is a message that is hard for people to embrace. Fundamentally, we want to believe, I am Lord. Or at least I would be if you all would get your act together. That's how we're wired. And that's not true. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord everywhere. It does not matter where, it does not matter who. He is the Lord. And the hand of the Lord, Jesus' hand, did something remarkable here at the preaching of that message. He stretched out his hand and in power changed hearts, melted opposition to that so that it was embraced and that the reign of Christ His lordship was not seen as oppressive, but was seen as beautiful. His reign was seen as deliverance rather than a crushing oppression. His reign was seen as fixing things, as correcting problems, as bringing us through our troubles to a place of glorious beauty and wholeness, restoring the world to what it's supposed to be. Nothing else out here can do that. You mean he can? And eyes were open to see that yes, he can. Ears were open to hear that yes, he can. That is what he is about. He's not about lording it over you. He is about being lord over you for your good. It takes the power of God to help people see that. And by grace, the power was poured out, and it was seen. That's what Barnabas saw when he pulled into town. He saw the presence of the grace of God and much fruit born. How did he see that grace? In the fruit in people's lives. Jot down Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. Don't look at it right now. It's a a meaty passage there, but jot that down and look at it later. 
This explains how he could see the grace of God. Because it says there in Titus that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And the sentence continues right on, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. And it walks right on in teaching obedience and a longing for Christ's return and a love for holiness. The same grace saves and sanctifies both. So he'd heard the claim that there had been saving grace, and he saw the evidence of that claim in seeing the sanctifying grace. Follow that. Grace does two things. It saves and it sanctifies. It saves and it changes. He saw this, and so he knew that that was present, and he was glad and rejoiced. This is the general point that we need to see here, the first observation Where the gospel is present, it bears fruit that is great and that lasts. Notice he encouraged them. Stay faithful, stay steadfast to this. And a year plus later, they are. Sending their money off to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Displaying that they understand the oneness of the body of Christ. They've been changed. It lasts. It's real. We need to understand that for ourselves and for others. For ourselves first, let me encourage you to think about this. Profession of faith is not the end all. And it may not be the beginning of anything. Profession of faith. Follow that. To profess faith is not the end and it may not even be the beginning. To have faith is the end and the beginning. But that faith will be seen by something. It will be shown by fruit. Fruit that lasts. Fruit that is diverse. People who have been saved are changed. You can see it. You can see the grace in their lives. Perfectly? No, of course not. But you can see it for sure in different areas. We're told to judge a tree by its fruit. Jesus' command. We can look and we can see evidence of grace. So look at your life and say, do I see evidence of grace? Don't bank on just your profession. If you actually have saving faith, you also have sanctifying grace. If you have saving grace, you have sanctifying grace. They are the same thing. Life needs to be changing. It's all by grace, but you can see it. Consider that for yourself, and consider that for others. We should not rest content with just people professing faith in Christ. We must work, labor with them, as Barnabas does here, labor with them and encourage them and exhort them and explain to them how one continues on in the faith, trusting that if grace is present, they will. There's great hope here. If grace is present, they will. Change will happen. We don't have to make it happen. God will make it happen. But we need to encourage and teach towards that end. Salvation is followed by change. Fruit. Change in how you view the people of God. That's what we see here in this passage. 
There's a, a, it's alluded to by the fact that he saw grace in their lives. Change across the board. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Change in love, change in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, in self-control. Those things will show up in your life if the Spirit is in your life. We do encourage people. Look for that. That's what the gospel produces. The gospel, God's gospel, does. It does produce lasting, great fruit in numbers of people and in the change within people, both. That's the first general observation. The second one, though, is what makes it unique in this passage. We could, that first general observation could be found anywhere in this book and anywhere in the Bible. But what's different here in this passage is the second observation. God's gospel bears great lasting fruit even in the Antiochs of the world. I'm using Antiochs in quotes there. Even in irreligious places like Antioch. Not only in Jerusalem, but in the hard places. This passage is all about a great work, a great number, a great many. It says three times it emphasizes that there, there are a lot of folks here. But it six times says Antioch. It's underlining something for us. This is all happening in Antioch. And if you take out Antioch, it sounds just like the early chapters in Jerusalem. The uniqueness here is Antioch. I mean, this is supposed to happen in Jerusalem. It wouldn't be surprising. Back in Jerusalem... You've got a whole bunch of people who are hanging on the edge of their seats for centuries waiting for the Messiah to arrive. They're waiting for him. They're reading the same scriptures. They have the same expectation. They speak the same language. Their common ground is all right to the very end, just only on the question of is or is not Jesus the Messiah. That's the difference. Everything else is shared. This kind of thing should happen. The gospel should bear fruit in Jerusalem. Some people who see the miracles, who see the resurrection, surely some people there will believe. But this isn't in Jerusalem, it's in Antioch, where none of that is common. None of that is shared. Not the same language, not the same culture, not the same religious background, no expectation of the Messiah. Totally different ballgame. Does the gospel work in Antioch? Yes. The gospel bears great fruit even there. And to be clear, here's what I mean by Antiochs. Communities, cities especially, I'm going to be emphasizing cities here, but you can translate it in your mind if you want to, large communities. Communities or cities that are culturally diverse, religiously mixed, pagan. Places or neighborhoods that aren't Christianized, that are not church-friendly, places that are melting pots of skin color and culture and language and desire and goals and expectations, places where good Bible-believing Christians usually flee from. Did you get that? The kinds of places that good Bible-believing Christians usually avoid. That's the problem. 
Because Jesus is after those places. Those places particularly, those places especially, because of all that they are, all that they can be, and all that they can show us about him. At the very bottom level, Jesus is about being seen and worshipped by lots of people. That's what he's about. Being seen and worshipped by lots and lots of people from all different tribes and tongues and peoples and languages. So think about this. Where are there lots and lots of people from all different sorts of backgrounds? In cities. The denser and more complex, the better. Now, I am not saying that Jesus does not love farmers. That he doesn't care about small town people. I'm not saying that. We've just seen that God shows no partiality at all towards people. But he does not consider every square mile equally. Think about this. Draw a square mile box around a farmer. Who's in the box? The farmer and his family. Draw that same size box around a small town. A couple hundred people there. Draw that same size box anywhere in metropolitan Chicago and you capture thousands and thousands and thousands of people from a rainbow of backgrounds. Jesus does not consider all three of those boxes equally because at the bottom level, there are a lot more people in one of them than in the other. And if he saves a person from that kind of a background, that's remarkable. Think about this. When he saves people from Jerusalem, when he saves a, let me just put a stereotype out here, when he saves a church-going Caucasian teenager in Nashville, That's good, but not remarkable. When a church thrives in the Bible Belt, good, not remarkable. But take somebody from a vastly different background in San Francisco and save him and save a number of them and build a thriving church there, and we will notice that. There's something about the diversity and the complexity of life and the number of people that displays more of the glory of Christ and his saving power and his bent, his desire for all peoples without distinction to come to faith. So he's after those types of settings, those Antiochs, because of the people in the box and because of the people who aren't in the box but will be influenced by those people who are in the box. Think about those types of communities or those types of cities, those Antioch places. Major cities are the hubs of all kinds of wheels, the hubs from which the spokes radiate out. Very commonly, economic, educational, legislative, judicial, communication and media centered in cities. The money is in cities. Minds are shaped in cities. Culture is built in cities. What starts on the coasts reaches the heartland, not the other way around. That's just how it works. These huge, diverse economic and political and educational capitals are of critical importance for the people who live there and for the people that they will influence. Miami, New York, Boston, 
Chicago, Minneapolis, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Seven or eight cities there. Think about those metropolitan areas. A massive portion of our country lives in those seven or eight places. And all of the culture is flowing from them. Perhaps a little bit of an overstatement, but not much. In the book of Acts, Christianity is an urban religion. And it starts right here in Antioch, a megacity. In the United States today, Christianity is a rural religion. That's a problem. All those cities I just mentioned, they are devoid. Not totally, but they are, they are woefully short on Bible preaching, gospel living churches. By the grace of God in recent years, that's changing. That's starting to, the tide is changing a little bit, but we have a long way to go. And the attitude in each individual Christian, even those of us here, that's where the change starts in what we think about these places. We have a, a Christian culture that wants to flee away from them. For decades and decades, churches have been leaving cities. That's a problem. We are more like Jonah than we should be. Fleeing away from wicked Nineveh. When God is saying, should I not have compassion on hundreds of thousands of people who don't know their right hand from their left? Go, preach there. That's a little big picture. Let me drop it down here and, and attempt to land this in our lives. Salt Lake. By no means an Antioch on the national level. It seems like we attempt to hide between our mountains sometimes here and not connect with the rest of the nation. So on a national level, this is not an Antioch. But locally, for the state of Utah and for the Mountain West region, this is the center. This is the place. Really, it is. <laughs> when we were driving out here, we were coming across Wyoming and realized, wow, <laughs> I can't wait to get to Salt Lake. <laughs> I never thought I'd say. <laughs> Somebody gave us a Starbucks gift card when we left Chicago, and we couldn't use it until we got to Salt Lake. <laughs> At that point, there wasn't a Starbucks between there and you. Yeah. A little exaggeration, probably. But. So here we are in the city of Salt Lake. What is, what's our attitude towards this city of Salt Lake City? The city proper, I mean. A few days ago, Heidi and I were driving through the city of Salt Lake, and we were in the community at 9th and 9th, if you know the area. A, a neat area. I, I like that area. We were driving through there. And as you drive around that community, you get an idea for what the community is like based on the proliferation of the political signs in the yards, all for one particular candidate. Not even two candidates, just one. Again and again and again and again and again. And you see rainbow-colored flags flying on houses, and you see certain bumper stickers here and there, and you get an idea of what the community is like. So put yourself there. What's the attitude rising up in your heart? Is there a wall going up? A line being drawn? Get me out of here. Or take me to that restaurant and then get me out of here. 
Is that, is that what's going on in your heart? Take me to the suburbs, please. Or, when I find what's in the suburbs here, take me out of the state and take me to some other suburbs somewhere. Is that the attitude rising up in your heart? Or is it compassion and love? And a desire, I mean, financially probably can't afford to, but a desire to move onto that block. To relate to people, to befriend people, to love people, to pray for the hand of God to fall on that community, not in judgment, but in grace. For his hand to move, to pour out grace on those people in those streets, in those houses, to save. Is that the desire? Can you imagine what would happen if that happened? If a Bible-believing, gospel-trumpeting church was planted right there and it thrived, the number of people who lived there and the number of people that those people influence is great. And the glory of the Lord would be great and would be magnified. Far more than it is when we leave and leave them to their own means. This is a really complex subject. I have, I have no concrete solution for what do you do about that community. There are church planting books and curriculum about how do you move in there, how do you plant a church there. I, I knew some folks who moved from Wheaton, Illinois, if you know anything about Wheaton, it would be a Jerusalem, moved from Wheaton. They, they purposed to plant a church in Hyde Park, Chicago. That's where the University of Chicago is. Influential place. A lot of people. Second most diverse community in the city of Chicago. Home to lots of major political figures. Right down the street from Louis Farrakhan. It's an influential place. And they said, we're going to plant a church there. And they moved from Wheaton to Hyde Park. Families and all. To plant a church there. That's bold. That requires a, a lot of planning, a call of God. I have no strategy to propose for that. I'm, I'm, that's above my head. I'm just trying to make an observation here, the second one from this passage, that God, who reigns over all things, causes persecution to arise in Jerusalem, to chase the gospel out of Jerusalem, to chase it into Antioch. And then he chased... Paul to the region of Antioch and he connected them and he built a church in Antioch and then used it as a launching pad to evangelize the whole rest of the Gentile world from Antioch. And none of that's by accident. God's after the Antiochs. Major cities, communities that are complex and diverse, multicultural in every sense of the word, he's after them. And when the gospel goes there, the hand of the Lord is outstretched and he pours out his grace, fruit will be born. The bottom level point here is that we need to confront and eliminate from our minds this thinking that that area is too hard. That, that area is just too, too lost, too pagan, too mean, too unconcerned for God to work there, and it's too unfriendly for me to work there. Look at that and dismiss it. Now, does that mean that you're supposed to move to 9th and 9th? Probably not. Maybe, probably not. 
But it means you've got to get the idea that this is too hard, this is too much, and throw that away. God is after all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And maybe the, the irreligious community that you face is your really, really religious neighborhood or your really, really irreligious workplace. Either one. Some place that you think, that's way too hard, way too complex, way too uncaring, way too mean. God's not going to do anything there, anything there and I don't want it to have anything to do with it. Maybe that's the Antioch for you here. Wherever it is, the point is God wants to and God will, by his gospel, by his power, bear fruit even in irreligious places. So carry the gospel there, skillfully, graciously, lovingly, boldly, confidently. I think there's a little lesson from Barnabas here. Barnabas hung out for a long time in Antioch. Antioch was never Christianized. It remained a pagan megacity, a thriving church within a pagan megacity. How do you endure that? You'll see the grace of God. These ones believe. God is at work. God is bearing fruit here in these ones. We will be faithful, full of the Spirit, full of faith, and we will continue to labor for him to bring in more as he chooses, wherever he chooses. Look at the irreligious places in your life. Believe that God will bear fruit there. Look at his grace. Believe and preach. Let me pray. Lord, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm preaching over my head here and that I don't know how to solve all these problems. I don't know how to reach the person who lives next door to me, let alone Antioch. But a little bit of me believes that where your hand moves, you will bear fruit. And a little more of me believes that now, and so I pray you would nurture that in me, and I pray, Lord, that throughout our congregation here that that little flicker of hope is being grown by your Spirit in other Christians here. Jesus, we want to see you worshipped as Lord everywhere. In all types of places. That there would be no place on earth that all people would say, well, it doesn't work there. We don't want that, Lord. We pray that you would extend your kingdom into all the different corners of the world. All the different complex places that the college campuses, the, the mega cities, the, the difficult work environments, the neighborhoods, all these different places that you would extend the reign of Jesus there. Father, that is our hope. Would you do that by the Spirit to the glory of Christ? We pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org 
or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 